you are listening to By the Book. Because if you don't look at the world through the Bible, you will never see it right. This is Alan Griffith. Welcome to episode 31 of By the Book. Glad you're with us today. I want to talk about an interesting area, simply this. Should Christians drink alcoholic beverages? You know, more Christians are drinking alcohol today than ever before, as far as I can tell. And if you question them, you might typically get a response like this. Well, the Bible says don't get drunk, but it doesn't say you cannot drink. Uh, One man told me it's a matter of Christian liberty. He said he could drink if he wanted to, and he's not a drinker. But he said he could drink alcohol if he wanted to, but he chose not to. Well, I want to tell you that by my experience, first of all, I've only seen alcohol destroy. Thousands of people die in alcohol-related accidents every year. About a month or so ago, I heard of a young mom killed by a drunk driver. She was carrying one little child, and uh, she had two Uh, already born and with her and her life taken out because somebody was drinking. And I know you're going to say, well, yeah, they were drunk. Well, millions of people are alcoholics. They ruin their own lives. Millions of marriages and families are being wrecked by alcohol. Uh, My father was a heavy drinker. I really never got to know him very well, a little bit later in life. But uh, my folks got divorced when I was about three years old. It was all about the alcohol. And then I would say, bless my mom's heart. She married my stepfather, and uh, his heavy drinking made a a mess of their marriage. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, they got married. I was a young teenager at the time. They got married, and within six months, they separated. And so much of it had to do with alcohol. So. You look at people's experience, and uh, you let me know if you've ever seen alcohol do anything good for a life, a marriage, or a family. I don't think you'll find it. And then I think of biblical principles. There's a lot of principles in the Bible. You know, we don't get uh, immediate, what I call immediate directives about everything in life. You know, do this, don't do that. But we get principles. And our challenge is to see the principle and then make application of it. Well, one that I think is very important for us is 1 Corinthians 10.31. You probably know what it says, but let me remind you of it. Paul wrote, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, to do something to the glory of God is to honor God, to magnify God, uh, to raise the opinion of others about God by what they see in your life. Well, I want to tell you, nobody drinks alcohol, and by that drinking brings glory to God. Nobody's drinking alcohol and thereby magnifying God and drawing other people to God. Just doesn't happen. And then I want to add this, because I believe with all my heart with regard to a lot of areas, not just alcohol, but you know, I found that the unsaved people who don't know Christ often seem to know better how Christians should live than some Christians do. Uh, Unsaved people would refer to Christians who drink alcohol as hypocrites. And 
I think there's a lot of truth to that. Well, I could go on with my thoughts and opinions and so on. I'm sure you have yours. But, you know, underneath all these things is the challenge to understand what the Bible teaches on the subject. That's really what it's ultimately about. And there's some terms in our English Bible, some key terms that are translated wine and strong drink. However, and here's part of the challenge, there are 10 Hebrew words that are found in various contexts and are translated wine in the Old Testament. So that's a challenge in itself because there's, there's meaning and nuance and, and such to all those terms. And then there's three Greek words which are translated wine in the New Testament. So what we're going to do to try to get some meaning is to start by matching the three Greek words with their closest companion terms from the Hebrew in the Old Testament. So I want to give you the matching terms and their simplest definitions. So the first set would be the Greek word glucose, which matches the Hebrew word tirach. And these terms basically mean freshly squeezed grape juice. Just that simple. Now the second set, the Greek word oinos, matching the Hebrew word yayin. Now, these terms mean pressed out juice and technically could be fermented or unfermented, but they're made ready for drinking by being mixed with water. And that's an important concept when you begin to search out the idea of drinking in, uh, in biblical times and in the biblical context. Now, those two terms, oinos and yayin, are the most common terms in Scripture. Oinos is found 28 times in the New Testament. Yayin is found over 130 times in the Old Testament. And then there's the third set, the Greek word sikara or sikara, matching the Hebrew shekar, these words mean unmixed or intensely alcoholic wine and are often translated strong drink. So I want you to get this concept now. You have the wine that is unmixed. In other words, no water has been added to it. The more common term in the Greek would be oinos. If that wine is fermented, then it is mixed with water for drinking purposes. So, uh, from Roman times, you have writers explaining, and I say Roman times, I mean the Bible times, times of the Roman Empire. You have writers who explain in detail how to keep freshly squeezed grape juice from fermenting. That was one of their challenges. Grape juice was an important drink, and so here's the challenge. Now, we have to keep this from getting fermented. So one writer, Columnella, said to keep it under 50 degrees and oxygen-free, and then, quote, here's his reasoning, that your grape juice may be always as sweet as when it is new. 
That was the challenge. And then he gave the process of what to do. And he said it would remain sweet for a year. Thus, it would be not intoxicating for a year if you followed his guidelines. And that was the common drink. And it was the sweet, unfermented wine. Now, let's suppose it's fermented. If the juice was allowed to ferment, it would be mixed with water. Anywhere from three parts of water to one part of fermented juice, up to, listen, 20 parts of water to one part of juice. Now, somebody tells me, you know, well, I, you know, I want to drink wine. Well, if you put two ounces of wine in the glass and then you added six ounces of water, I don't know if you want to drink it, but that is what would make sure it was not intoxicating. And that was the issue. That was the point. Now, unmixed wine, in other words, intensely alcoholic, not mixed with water, that would be strong drink, to be sure, and that was totally unacceptable. But if you go back in history and try to get into these things, you find that the Jewish rabbis required at least three parts water to one part juice, or it could not be blessed, the beverage could not be blessed, and it would defile the drinker. Some required 10 parts of water to one part. Others, believe it or not, challenged or, or, or said you had to have even up to 20 parts of water. So underneath all that then is kind of the, the issue of alcohol content. And three parts of water to one part of fermented juice produced about a 2.5% alcohol content. Now, how does that match up with beverages today? Because that's really the issue. Well, the alcohol content in beer today is about 5%. For wine, it's about 9 to 11%. Fortified wine is about 15 to 20%. And harder liquors could be as much as 40 to 50%. So to put it in simple terms, all alcoholic beverages available today would be considered strong drink and condemned in scripture. Now, it'd be nice to find, you know, some verses that just would say this and that and whatever, but terms had various meanings and, and we need to search it out and, and figure it out. Now, let me mention this. What about the Lord's Supper? The gospel writers in Matthew 26, 29, then Mark in 14, 25, Luke in 22, 18, all use the term fruit of the vine to describe the beverage. Now, keep this in mind. In other words, my point is they weren't drinking fermented wine at the Lord's table. I know some churches do that today, and they say, oh, well, this is what they used in Bible times. Well, let me add this. The Lord's Supper was instituted at Passover. And in Exodus 12, 15, in the Old Testament, seor, seor, that's a Hebrew term that refers to a leavening or fermenting uh, agent. That was forbidden to even be in the house in Passover. So I can't accept somebody saying, oh, well, you know, that's, that's what they used back then. No, 
there was nothing allowed in the house that could leaven or ferment. It certainly wasn't going to be in the beverage that they were drinking. All right, now somebody's going to ask this. Well, what about when the Lord turned the water into wine at the marriage feast at Cana? Now, that's in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And I've got my Bible open. I'm just going to read that to you. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. In other words, he was saying, you know, this is not a time for me to be working miracles. His mother saith unto the servants, whatever he saith unto you, do it. And I want you to get this now. Maybe you have your Bible open. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Now, these water pots were for purifying. They were for cleansing, washing, whatever it might be. And they each contained two or three firkins apiece. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute. But verse 7, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is, that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. Well, what's what's that mean? Well, here's what I want you to think about. We had six water pots, up to three firkins in each water pot. Now, I've researched, and a firkin is described as being anywhere from seven and a half to nine gallons. So you've got six water pots, and if we dare take uh, the nine gallons, three firkins, you're talking about each water pot holding 27 gallons. So you've got the six pots times the 27 gallons, and you know what that comes out to? 162 gallons. Now I want to ask you a question. Was it fermented wine? Are you going to try to tell me that we're at the wedding feast, wine has been provided, and the guests have now drank all the wine that was provided, and now the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come along and say, well, look, let me give you 162 more gallons of fermented wine. I'll never believe that one. But let me remind you, let's bring some direct scripture into this. Let me remind you of Proverbs 23, 31. It says, look not. In other words, don't even look. Look not upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. 
when it moveth itself, that's fermentation. In other words, the writer is saying when it is fermented, don't even look upon it. And then listen to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 15. It says this, woe unto him. That term woe means judgment. Let judgment fall. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. Let the person who gives his neighbor drink be judged. It goes on. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him and makes him drunken also. If the Lord Jesus Christ provided 162 gallons of fermented wine, somebody was getting drunk. And so the Lord Jesus would have been violating the scriptures if he had done what a lot of people want to think that he has done. Now, what about Romans 14, 21? I think it's fair to bring this up. Paul said this, it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, the term there is oinos, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or made weak. So that's where somebody's going to come up and say, well, you see, it's Christian liberty and I can drink if I want to, but I just need to make sure I don't offend other people and so on. Listen, Paul's not saying that it's okay to drink fermented wine. He's saying drinking wine, drinking oinos that others may perceive as fermented because they don't know what you're drinking, puts your testimony at risk. Now, I've had people tell me they they drink beer, but only non-alcoholic beer. Well, I would ask, and I have asked, why? why? Why do you drink that? Why do you have to drink beer? a beverage that everybody tends to assume is going to be an alcoholic beverage, but you're going to drink it, but you're going to make sure it's the the non-alcoholic. Why? I'll tell you this, every time you did that, you'd have to explain. Oh, I'm drinking beer, but it's non-alcoholic. Well, let me tell you, folks, I think the Bible is very clear. If you and I are willing to consider not just what the Bible says, but to then get it into its historic context. It's a different context than than we are in today. Because today, when you use the term wine, you automatically are thinking of something that is able to make you drunk. That's strong drink. So you go back to the scripture and you see these different terms and we need to take time to figure out what does that term mean? What did it mean in its day? And what was the practice of Bible times? And if you take time to study it, you'll find that the practice of Bible times was this. If the wine was fermented, it would be mixed with water at least on a three-to-one basis before it was ever served. It would be totally socially unacceptable to put on the table the fermented wine that could make somebody drunk. So I don't know where you are in this, but again, I'm going to come back and tell you alcohol has never done anybody any good. It is destructive. It certainly ruined uh, my family growing up, really, um, before I knew what was going on. 
And you know, I've seen it destroy an awful lot of people. So I challenge you, not only from the practical standpoint, but take time to consider the biblical standpoint, and you're going to conclude there's no place for alcohol in the life of the Christian. God bless you.